Okay, hello, good afternoon. Uh, this is Sumit Das. Uh, I'm a paediatric anaesthetist in Oxford, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Thomas, who's a consultant at Great Ormond Street and um, consulted on the paediatric component of the recent NAP6. So Mark's very kindly agreed to talk to us about the NAP6 study. Um, so Mark, can we just start by giving us a little background on how the, the information was obtained. Yeah, sure. So uh, many of you, um, good afternoon or good morning or good evening, everyone <laughs> listening. Um, <laughs> many of you will have visited uh, the NAPS website, um, but this is hopefully give you another format in which to glean some of the um, important information from NAP6. Um, that from an anaesthetic perspective, there were really three phases to it. The one was a retrospective um, survey of all anaesthetists in the country. So many of you will have well, at least 77% uh, of you <laughs> replied out of 11,000 anaesthetists. So it's an incredible achievement, really, as a profession we should all be proud of, um, with your experience over the previous year of anaphylaxis and uh, what you thought the suspected trigger agent was, and then some questions about your career length and so forth. So that was a retrospective analysis of the state of play Clearly, that's open to some bias in terms of recall bias, in terms of double reporting. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it gave us a figure that roughly uh, one, once every seven years of career, you might expect to see an anaphylaxis. That's across adult and paediatric practice. It's going to be less in paediatrics, as we'll discuss later. Mm -hmm. um, the second phase was to collect both accurate denominator data, so how many times is a drug given in a year, now, this is clearly a very difficult thing to do accurately, but um, the best way of doing it was judged to be to do a two-day snapshot survey, um, two days chosen randomly out of a three-week period, including weekends but excluding bank holidays across the nation. By that, we were able to establish both in paediatrics and in adults how much of a certain drug, how many times a certain drug was given to how many patients. And then we know then how what the denominator is. And then the third part of the study was to collect the numerator data, that's to say the cases of anaphylaxis over a whole year. Thank you. Um, and so the key findings? Yes, so uh, the key findings from, from NAP6, uh, from a paediatric perspective, I suppose you could summarize in the fact that there were no deaths. There were 11 reported cases out of a to total of just over 400,000 GAs. So we, from the denominator data, we established that around 400,000 paediatric GAs are delivered every year in the UK. And uh, 11 reported cases. Some of those were excluded by the panel as probably not being anaphylaxis or at least couldn't identify a clear precipitant for them. So we were left with, were left with uh, slightly less to sub-analyze. But nevertheless, 11 were reported. And uh, the biggest single agent was atracurium. Three cases of atracurium uh, anaphylaxis suspected were reported. Uh, and then there were some individual cases of other drugs. Um, as you might expect for, from historical data and from adult data, the largest candidates, uh, most likely candidates, were split pretty equally between neuromuscular blockers and antibiotics. So you'd expect from historical data to have about 40% of cases due to NMBs, 40% uh, due to antibiotics, and that was in fact the case. I think there were four cases suspected 
um, neuromuscular anaphylaxis and three, three or four, I think, of uh, antibiotic in pediatrics. Um, so, yeah, that was the that was the main finding in terms of the uh, causative agents, mm -hmm. and then in terms of the outcomes, uh, there were no arrests, there were no deaths. Um, the um, probably the only negative, uh, there were, I, I should say that the, all the cases were attended by a consultant, if not at the beginning, then very quickly after the onset. Different from adult practice in that the PEDS cases tended to present with high airway pressures and bronchospasm as a, uh, as a first sign. So it's in some ways easier to get to what was the what might be going on than in adults where hypotension seems to be more of a feature and therefore the differential is slightly greater. Um, and adren we were prompt to give adrenaline as pediatric anaesthetists and uh, prompt to resuscitate. Uh, the um, only negative finding, as I was about to tell you, is that um, the follow-up is very challenging in children, both mm. in terms of their compliance with skin prick and mm. in intradermal testing in particular, which is quite painful, I understand. Uh, and uh, getting them to a appropriate clinic and getting the uh, useful information that you need to give them potentially to give them an, a second anaesthetic with known safe agents that have been excluded on testing, uh, those are real challenges that remain um, remain to be solved or at least go part way to be solved. Sure. So it sounds like as a group we're fairly good um, in the in the heat of the moment in managing the acute problem, um, what are the sort of learning points in, in the next steps regarding Marcel Triptase timing? Because there's always a little bit of confusion there. Yes, you're right. I mean, the guidelines, as I'm sure you and, and our listeners will be aware, are that you should try and obtain three samples for Marcel Triptase, mm -hmm. one at one hour, one at four hours, and one at 24 hours. Now, anyone who's had a case will uh, immediately realise that in the heat of the moment, it is quite difficult to think of that. And uh, if at least uh, to get one sample at around the one hour to two hours is really a, a standard of care, because that will should capture the peak if there is one in Marcel Triptase. The baseline can be taken. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't try and get one at 24, but it can be taken in the clinic um, uh, after the event, after the rec hopeful recovery of, of the case. Uh, so that's not as, as essential as capturing the peak, which does help in, in labelling or at least correctly diagnosing this case as an anaphylaxis case. Okay. Slightly more controversial now. The general feeling has been that on a case of anaphylaxis on induction, the feeling has been to manage the case, stabilise the case, and then abandon the case. Was there any discussions amongst your multidisciplinary team about there ever being a case where once the child was stable, to not abandon the case but to continue with surgery? Yeah. I mean, this, you raise a very good point because um, if the child has recovered and is stable, uh, you, you do face a dilemma in, in whether to proceed or not because if the operation is still going to be necessary, and it, it, you know, you'd hope that you wouldn't be doing unnecessary operations in the first place, mm. but say the scan or the procedure, if it's still going to be necessary, uh, then they're going to have not only a delay in getting the diagnosis confirmed and hopefully finding a combination of agents to which they're not allergic, but the anxiety that that would provoke in terms of both not only of the delay and still yet to go undergo the procedure, but the 
the anxiety about potential for anaphylaxis happening again. And uh, if they are stable and um, it's a reasonably urgent procedure, then I think there's a very good case for having a discussion with the surgeon and, and possibly the family if they're stable enough as to whether or not you should go ahead because um, you're going to avoid those anxieties. You won't know what caused it, and that is clearly mm. an issue. Um, but if you could avoid anything that you'd given up to that point and uh, um, you know, and, and switch techniques largely, um, then you you could make a case for carrying on and not to not delaying. I can't, and honestly, uh, it may be in the report. But I can't remember how many of the pediatric cases were abandoned versus carried on. But it's a question that we asked of all the reported cases. And I, off the top of my head, I think very few of them were abandoned at the time. Okay. Um, but I couldn't honestly say the exact figure. Okay, thank you. Uh, and just to finish, I'd just be interested to know uh, if, um, if you've changed your practice in any way. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I learned quite a lot about, um, I mean, not that I was completely ignorant before, you understand, <laughs> but I learned quite a lot about anaphylaxis during the course of this um, this study. Uh, I mean, um, one of the things was about the labelling of uh, food a food allergies that patients and parents often come with, uh, an allergy to egg or soya or uh, some other food product, and um, I was... I already had the impression, but I was convinced by many people over many separate conversations that there is not an issue about cross-sensitivity between any foods and anaesthetic agents, mm -hmm. including uh, one which I had always been worried about, which was kiwi. Mm -hmm. And my own son has a kiwi allergy, so that perhaps <laughs> interest right. piqued my interest in it. Yeah. But um, uh, about kiwi allergy and latex, there were no cases of latex allergy in either adults or children. Probably a, a great large part to um, the um, latex-free environment mm. that we now work in, mm. non-powdered gloves, um, less spinal bifida surgery occurring and so forth. So um, there... Uh, that that uh, yeah that the mislabeling is what is is what uh, sorry the in a, the labeling of food allergy is probably not an issue for us although it is an epidemic in pediatrics as a, as a whole is on the increase many parents I think something like twenty percent of kids parents have come with a label of some sort of food allergy but okay. it really is a, a non-issue in terms of anaesthetic agents. The other thing uh, is the um, inappropriate labelling of penicillin allergy. So, uh, as many will be aware, tycoplanin was a major trigger in the adult data, 17 times more likely to have an anaphylactic reaction to tycoplanin than penicillin. And tycoplanin is the second choice, usually, in many institutions if you're labelled as penicillin allergic. So you're falsely labelled quite often. I think something like 90, between 90 and 95% of children are falsely labelled. And then, as a result, they get tigerplanin, which is going to put them into a... Not that there were any documented or confirmed cases in the PEDS group. There was one suspected. Um, but it could mean that you give something to which they are genuinely allergic, trying to avoid something to which they weren't ever allergic. Sure. And that is it. That is... The resources aren't there currently to delabel all those children. 20% uh, of the paediatric population, you know, that's... Mm -hmm. 400,000... That's 80,000 GAs presenting with a penicillin allergy you'd have to delabel, and delabel them on the day is not an issue, is, not a, is a non-starter because you have to, you know, properly uh, skin prick test them and so forth. So um, that, is, that is a challenge for us, and I suppose as an aesthetist we're probably not able to impact upon it much um, uh, other than to um, uh, flag it up. Sure. So... Um 
I'm thinking about the, the child that comes where uh, it, the, it's a very weak story of a bit of a rash. Um, in that situation, can we, can we, uh, can we make a, an, a, an approach then um, and document in the notes that they've had augmenting without, without an effect and write to the GP? I think if if you have you know if that's a decision you made on the day with discussion with the parents, what many people are quite rightly paranoid about is that um, you uh, try and delabel them on the day. You won't necessarily get thanked for that, mm. you, and you may end up with a true rare, but you might end mm. up with a true anaphylaxis to something that someone told you they were allergic to, uh, which is very difficult to defend, yeah. and you're probably less likely to be thanked for the hundreds that you delabeled successfully sure. by running the risk. Now. Um, we are in a very good position, of course, to resuscitate them if they were truly allergic, but there are other ways in which you can assess them in, the, in a cold setting without the imminent, you know, em, in, uh, um, the, the uh, general anaesthetic that's about to occur. So probably it's, the it's, a, it's an issue that's probably best left to the allergists and the immunologists to, to diagnose. Um, that's not to say that if there's a very soft history of diarrhoea and vomiting that I wouldn't have a discussion with the parents and mm. we'd come to an agreement that actually penicillin is probably in their interests uh, mm. versus their risk. Fantastic. Okay, thank you for clarifying that mm. and thanks for your time this afternoon. Thanks very much, Sumit. You're welcome.